into a sermon series called Resolving Everyday Conflict. I don't know if uh, who, who here has conflict. Uh, see, it's a timely topic, right? So I want to play uh, a little word game here in a second, but uh, here's where we're going. Uh, when it comes to conflict, we're going to talk about my pause. Uh, second week, we're going to talk about my part. Third week, as I mentioned, Alex Lupo is going to be here. And then finally, we're going to talk about his plan. So I want to play this, this uh, word game. I'm going to say a phrase, and I want to hear back from you. When I say conflict, you say resolution. Ooh, there's a bunch of peacemakers here. Is that the only thing you say? When I say conflict, you say war. War. Oh. Yeah, what else do you say? Run. Run. <laughs> Perfect. What else do you say? When I say conflict, you say fight. Yeah. See, there's a variety of responses to conflict, aren't there? Fight, flight, or freeze are the three most common ones. When, when you hear some, yeah, fight, uh, or, oh, yeah, that's one response. The other one is run. I don't want anything to do with this. The other one is freeze. I don't know what to do, but if I stand here long enough, maybe it'll go away. That rarely works, by the way. So this is normal for, for us. Some people like conflict. Some people will do everything they can to avoid conflict. But here's the thing about conflict. Here is the fact. In this world, we will have conflict. So doesn't it behoove us to learn how to deal with it, especially as Jesus followers? Because here's what I will put out to you today, and you're going to think I'm nuts. That's okay. When I say conflict, I hear opportunity. Now think about this. Who in, in the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, the peacemakers, because not because they swell conflict, not because they ignore it, but because they resolve conflict. And they resolve it in a way that brings God glory. How is that possible? Stay tuned. But here's the other thing. In this world, the more common things, more common than peacemakers, are peace fakers and peace breakers. Peace fakers are those who go, oh no, everything's good, I'm good. And then you turn around and what was all those darts in my back? <laughs> Why did that happen? Or they'll say to your face, everything's fine, but then they'll, they'll sow the seeds of discontent in an organization or a culture. Those are peace fakers. Those are not blessed, by the way. Peace breakers, they're just looking for a reason to fight. If they're not having a fight on their hands, they'll create one so they can have a fight. They just like to fight. And, and they want to win, by the way. Peace breakers want to win. At all costs, I win, you lose. That's the way that works. Peace fakers are, nobody wins because we just don't resolve it. We pretend like it's not there. But none of that is healthy. Peacemakers are what is healthy. And so we're going to look at a very familiar biblical passage. You've heard this a million times, but I don't know if you've ever really stopped to think about the context of this passage. If I were to ask you uh, the most perfect example that we could have of anybody who ever walked this earth and dealing with conflict, um, that would be Jesus. <laughs> uh, how did Jesus deal with conflict? That, that's something that we want to learn from today. Because in this, in this passage, uh, we're going to see him deal with some serious conflict. Now, from what you know about the Bible, who did Jesus have the most conflict with? The Pharisees. Man, you guys are good, or you read my notes, I'm not sure which. So Jesus had the most conflict with the Pharisees. Now, I'm going to throw this passage up. I'm going to throw the verse right before the famous passage so that you can get the context of what's going on here. Because Jesus is teaching and preaching among the crowds. He's getting very popular. His message is gaining momentum, and the Pharisees don't like that. Pharisees and the Sadducees don't like that because it threatens their power, it threatens their way of being, even though he's speaking truth. They're still fascinated by other things. So check out what happens here and, and you'll see why this actually relates to conflict. 
I'm reading from Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, that doesn't sound ominous. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of God for the people of God and for these words. We're grateful. So Jesus, this, this famous question, what's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and the neighbor as yourself, is a conflict question. And it's, a, it's an innocent question if you take it out of context. Yeah, that's a great question to ask, but notice the context in which it's asked. The Sadducees have been defeated by Jesus. If you want to read earlier in the book, you can see how many times Jesus shut them down. Hey, who should we pay taxes to? You're trying to trick him. If you pay to, to Rome, then your people will abandon you. But if you, if you don't pay to Rome, Rome's going to be mad at you. See the traps they're trying to set for him. And every time he gets out of it, he has defeated the Sadducees. And so the Pharisees get together and go, huh, we're better than that. We're the experts of the law. We're going to ask him a really tricky question. What's the most important commandment? Think about the evolution of commandments for just a second to, to realize how complicated this gets. Back in the day when we lived in paradise, at a place called Eden, there was just one rule, one command. Remember it? Don't eat from this tree. That's it. That's all there was. And then, you know how the story goes. We, we have a little issue. And so we had to come back with ten rules. And, and in the ten rules that came, uh, not suggestions, ten commandments came off the mountain, and we had ten rules. Now, just to understand how the Pharisees approached this, by the time the Pharisees had gotten a hold of these ten rules, and by the time Jesus walked this earth, they had created 613 rules to follow, and they rank ordered them. Like, which is most important. Kind of like, okay, this is a class A felony down to a class, I don't know, C, misdemeanor, whatever. Right? So they had rank ordered all of these, and they're trying to trick Jesus. What is the most important, they're thinking, of these 613 commandments? Isn't Jesus amazing? Because he cuts right through the complexity and makes it as simple as possible. Love God. And then love neighbor. This fascinates me how Jesus is able to sneak through all of that and get down to the heart of the matter. Now the trick is, if, they, if he said at some point, well, you love God with all your mind and soul, and that's all he said, then they could go back to the Romans, the Pharisees. could go back to the Romans and say, he's encouraging people to uh, be not loyal to Rome. You should do something about that. But if he says some other thing, then he could go back to his own followers and say, well, he's clearly not in love with God. He's, he's a rule breaker. He didn't enforce the most important one, according to us, let alone you know, the God who makes all the rules and his son. Totally independent, right? So there's a trap set here, and he expertly dodges it, but at the same time says something that resonates with us today as Jesus followers. This is the essence of being a Jesus follower. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love neighbor as yourself. And he says the most curious thing. This is another thing that is easy just because we've read it so much that we just kind of buzz right through it. But let's not buzz right through this. Let's look at this last piece. He says, uh, the second is like a love neighbor yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
Now, it makes sense to me why he would say all the law hangs on this. He's talking to a Pharisee. He's saying, you know all those 613 things that you do? Uh, love God, and then love neighbor. Because in the essence of these 613 rules, you have nailed the letter of the law, but you've forgotten the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is love. And of all the things that God could have picked as the number one thing when he gave the commandments, of all the things that Jesus could have answered, what's the most important? Why does he pick love? Because love endures. Love wins. Love is eternal. Well, at least God's love. And that's the point. It's God's love. We have to love like God loves. So the first part I get, all the law, he's talking to a Pharisee. He's basically saying, you got the, the letter down now, get the spirit down. Why does he have the prophets? What does that have to do with anything? I pondered this for like, I don't know, two years. And, and, and you get the benefit of two years of pondering. How much time you got? Totally kidding. Here's what I think might be happening here. All the law and the prophets. What was the role of the prophets? Throughout the history of Israel, if you go back and you look at what prophets did, they basically were calling people back to God because they had wandered from the law. Or maybe they kept the letter of the law, but they wandered from the spirit of the law. And the prophet's job was to come back and say, Oh, remember uh, God? Remember his love for you? Remember how he asked you to love and turn up? Come back. Come back to the family. Come back to the fold. That's what the prophet's job was, to call people back. In other words, there's a, there's a fancy theological term. It's called to reconcile. So God's love, loves like God does, with the end result always being to reconcile. To reconcile, to bring back together. Where there was once enmity or hatred, now there's harmony and togetherness. So, in essence, Jesus is saying the spirit of the law, but remember, even you, Pharisee, who's supposed to be the pinnacle of what it is to be a, a Jew in that time, come back to God. That's the bottom line. Come back to the spirit. Come back to the heart. Come back to loving like God loves with the goal of reconciliation. Now, a prophet was fairly popular because a prophet would come in and say, y'all straight. We need to get back. They would have standards that they would enforce, and people didn't want to hear that. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. So prophets were not popular, but the goal is reconciliation. And that's the thing that we need to remember in Jesus following. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is not to win or lose. The goal is to reconcile. The goal is not to flee, to hide. The goal is to reconcile, because that makes the body of Christ stronger. Now, what does that look like? Well... I want to give you a story here. I wish I could tell you this is not a true story, but it is. And it's heartbreaking. There was a, a mother who had an adult son. And this is not here, so don't start looking around and see who's not here. This is a while ago in another place. But this woman had an adult son. The son was married, had two children. Times were stressful. He ended up getting hooked on drugs. He became an addict. And it darn near ruined his marriage. He lost his job almost lost his marriage. And his mother was a real estate agent. Uh, they were about to become homeless because they couldn't pay the bills. They were going to get kicked out of their house. So the mom, in love, said, you know what, I'm going to take care of your housing. I've got this place that we can put you up at with the kids. Everything's going to be fine. Now, what mother wouldn't do that? Right? That's an act of love. 
Unfortunately, here's what happened, because her love was just a, a, a temporary fix, but it wasn't a reconciling love. It wasn't a call back to come out of that world of drugs. In essence, now his housing was taken care of, so he had more money for drugs. But it wasn't enough money, because if you know anything about addiction, it rarely just flatlines. It grows, and it will consume you, literally. And so, because he couldn't get a job, because he had been fired for drugs, he decided the next best way to raise money was to sell drugs. And so he began to sell drugs out of the house that the mother provided. I learned about this because I heard about an incident where someone to whom he owed money showed up at his house demanding the money with two little kids and the wife. You can imagine how that went over. She was out of there. Well, he became more distraught. More distraught meant more drugs. And unfortunately, they found him on the floor dead of an overdose. Why do I tell you this story? To bum you out? No, to say, love isn't just enabling. Love doesn't say, it's okay, do whatever. Love reconciles, and sometimes it's a tough love. Sometimes you have to have tough conversations. Sometimes you have to enforce boundaries. I'm not faulting this mom. She did the best she could. She did the best with what she had, with what she knew. Sometimes, no matter how good you do, people are going to be people. It's just the way it is. But I wonder how many times do we settle for avoiding the conflict? We don't say the hard things in love. How many times do we enter conflict thinking, I've got to win, and not just reconcile? So you may be wondering, well, what's the difference between winning and reconciling? What's the difference between avoidance and reconciling? How do we do this? Here's another passage in Romans 15. Five and six in this case. It says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you glorify the Father. What is that same attitude in mind? Again, think about how Jesus dealt with people. Who did he accept into his presence? Who did he see down? Everyone, especially the sinners. If there are 99 of us here and one out there, guess where Jesus is going to be? So the same attitude in mind, he sought everyone out. But to what end? There's my favorite question. To what end did he seek these people out? To affirm their sin? To enable their sin? Or to call them back into the fold? See, Jesus was all about reconciling. That was the whole point of his life. In fact, that was the whole point of his death. To reconcile us to God. And, and by the way, he, he popped back out of that one. I don't know if you've read that. Spoiler alert comes back out of the grave. And he's still reconciled. He still gives us the power to reconcile as well. So what does this look like for us? Well, here's my thing. Conflict, in my mind, is an opportunity done right. I've got to put aside the desire to win. I've got to put aside the desire to flee. I've got to enter into this conflict with the sole goal of reconciliation. And here's where it starts. The tactical pause. You may have heard it said this way when you were a kid, when you start getting all frustrated and your parent might say, stop and count to ten and take a breath. That's all the tactical pause is. When I see conflict arising, when I get my hackles up, whether it's whether I want to flee or I want to fight, I stop and I think, okay, my first response is probably not going to be my most Christ-like. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm 
going to take 10 seconds. I'm going to reconnect with God. I'm going to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength just for 10 seconds. And then I'll think about opening my mouth. That's not my first choice, though. My first choice is to open my ears because I want to hear. I want to reconcile. I don't want to win, and I don't want to run. I want to reconcile. That's what it's all about, that reconciliation, that tactical pause that lets me step back as only we can and say, whatever happens next, how can I help this to glorify God? That's the attitude that Jesus would have. I can just imagine him there when the, the, the woman in adultery is drug out and Jesus had a long, hard day. He probably stopped by the gas station and they were out smoothies and, and he was cranky because he hadn't had sneakers yet, whatever. But they pull this thing out there's this ugly situation. And does he open his mouth right away? No, he stops and doodles in the sink. I wonder if he's connecting back with his father. I wonder if he's connecting back to that love, that love that knows no end, that love that would search out anyone, anywhere, so that he can call back. Because here's the thing I found. Whenever you approach an argument, people are going to look at your footsteps. Where are you coming from? If I'm coming from my position, then, oh, it's fine. But if I'm coming from God, and they're coming from God, then we're walking a pretty similar path. They want to know where you're coming from, but they also want to know where you're going to. The point of this reconciliation is never just to come at people. It's to come alongside people and encourage both of us to look at God and take a journey closer to God. Because the closer we each get to God, the closer we get to each other. Maybe that's why he says love God first and then love neighbor. I don't know. God's pretty smart that way. I bet he set that up. He can do that. So the tactical pause is the key. Take a second. Connect to the Creator. Make sure that your first response is a God-like response, is a Christ-like response, and not just your response. So here's the name game one more time, the, the word game. When I say conflict, you say... Resolution. I'm hearing some great answers. Resolution, reconciliation, tactical pause. When I hear conflict, I say opportunity. Opportunity resolution, for reconciliation, for a body of Christ that looks stronger than we've started. If we fail to have the confrontation, we become weakened. If we have the confrontation in order to win, we become weakened. Because somebody loses, somebody wins. But if we have the confrontation for the purpose of reconciliation, well, that's a win-win. I win. You, and most importantly, God wins. When I say conflict, you say opportunity. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunities that you put in our path. Sometimes there are people that rub us the wrong way. Sometimes there are people that we just can't stand to be around. Sometimes they're aloof and disregard us. Sometimes they're right in our face and we can't get away from them. God, in every one of those, there is an opportunity as I look at the life of your son, Jesus Christ, and how he handled all those opportunities, I see a consistent thread. His motive is love. His goal is reconciliation. His entire mission made it possible for us to be reconciled to God so that we can love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then in turn love neighbor and self. God, help us as we try to learn how to do this better, to be experts, to tactical pause. And in that tactical pause, I pray that you would pour out your spirit. 
Give us the right words to say or not say. Open our hearts to your love. Open our ears for your guidance. And let the world see you through us in every opportunity. Pray this in Jesus' name.